its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. An essential source of water and energy and a facilitator of international trade, the Great Lakes provide drinking water to over 24 million people across the United States and Canada, while supporting the shipping of 200 million tons of cargo every year. They're also home to myriad ecosystems, ranging from marshlands to forests to dunes, whose biodiversity is threatened by the impacts of climate change, invasive species, and pollution. For millennia, humans have used waterways to connect with each other and exchange resources, but with this comes unique environmental challenges. Ships emit around 1 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere each year, according to the International Maritime Organization, and the shipping industry can have direct harmful impacts on the water systems on which it relies. Because of their landlocked geography, waterways like lakes and rivers are particularly vulnerable to even small ecosystem changes. For instance, the introduction of invasive species exacerbated by the trading economy has plagued lakes around the world, affecting everything from indigenous traditions to fishers' livelihoods. This challenge is common to the Great Lakes, Lake Titicaca on the border of Peru and Bolivia, Great Bear Lake in Canada, and Lake Balkash in Kazakhstan, just to name a few. Pollution and eutrophication are also major concerns for landlocked waterways, as runoff from industry and agriculture promotes algal blooms that consume dissolved oxygen, as seen in, for instance, the Caspian Sea. In our next panel, we will hear from two organizations addressing complementary aspects of the waterways challenge. One will discuss efforts to improve shipping sustainability, while the other will explain a creative concept for turning invasive species into material resources. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Danielle Doggett, founder and CEO of Sail Cargo Inc., and Emily Marquette, team member on the Zebra Glass Project. Hello, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very happy to have you. Would you get us started with a brief overview of your work at Sail Cargo Inc? Yes, hello. Thank you, Aubrey. Um, this is wonderful. I'm really glad to be presenting here. My name is Danielle, and I'm the founder of Sail Cargo Inc. Our mission is to prove the value of clean shipping, and we're doing that by building wooden ships right now in the jungle of Costa Rica. So we founded this company in, oh, I founded this company in 2014, originally in Canada. I am from the Great Lakes region. We decided to take our build of the first emission-free cargo ship of this size to Costa Rica as it has access and proximity to the hardwoods that we want to use to uh, build the vessel. So alongside this, we also have a registered nonprofit association, which ties into coastal communities. Uh, as well as tree planting, as we are very focused on regenerative sourcing of materials. Right now, we are building this ship. It is the largest ship of any kind ever built in the history of Costa Rica. She will have two 150 kilowatt electric engines, as well as her three masts and sails. We had so much uh, positive feedback from this, though, that we decided to actually purchase a new-to-us ship, which is called Vega, which is why I'm here in the Netherlands today. So we are actually bringing back Vega 
and she looks almost identical to Seba. And Vega, when she starts operating later this year, will be the largest emission-free cargo ship in the world. And Vega, in my opinion, is very beautiful. So that's my introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, very excited, as always, to, to hear more in just a moment. Um, but for now, I must turn to Emily, who we're also very excited to have with us. Would you mind telling us just a bit about the Zebra Glass Project? Sure. Thank you so much for having me today, Aubrey. Um, I'm excited to be here and represent the Zebra Glass team. Uh, this project was originally established in 2020, um, and it was within the bounds of a sustainable materials graduate course in the Color and Materials graduate program at College for Creative Studies in Detroit, Michigan. Um, so also coming from the Great Lakes region and going to school in Detroit, um, we identified zebra mussels as an invasive species uh, for our region and as designers um, tried to understand how we could use them as a material resource. Uh, so other members that were on the zebra glass team include Masa Benedaki, who is a CMF designer as well. And then we had Viva Huang, who's a designer based out of Taiwan. And this project uh, was under the mentorship of Matthew Strong. So as a team, uh, we developed a formal proposal to use zebra and quagga mussels as a source of calcium carbonate to create a region-specific soda lime glass. Thank you for that introduction. Once again, we'll learn more very shortly. But for now, Danielle, I'm going to turn back to you with our first uh, part of our q and I'll remind audience members to please feel free to drop any questions you have for this session in the chat box. Okay, Danielle, what are you hoping to demonstrate or really accomplish by deploying a fleet of sailing cargo ships, which it just sounds very revolutionary, even though it's really taking uh, taking a look at a technology that's existed in in some ways for a long time. I know you're you're exploring other sort of propulsion mechanisms, which we'll get to in a minute. But what are you hoping to accomplish here? So as I said, our mission is to prove the value of clean shipping. And what we wanted to do was start by building the largest emission-free cargo ship that we felt that our group was able to do. So that's uh, 150 feet or 45 meters length overall, a vessel that can carry the equivalent of nine containers. And this is a, the important thing that we're hoping to do is operate our for-profit company in a financially viable manner, as well as socially responsible and environmentally responsible. And even though we're smaller than companies such as Maersk or the other, you know, very large uh, shipping companies you can picture, especially in the Great Lakes, we're both for-profit companies. And so what we want to be able to do at the end of the day is take these, these statements at the end of the day and say, we're for-profit, we pay wages, we pay everything. We, and at the end of the day, we have a positive return on investment, not only financially, but environmentally and socially. And thereby that could set a precedent that other companies could also do that. We want to prove that there is value in having a re reduced or eliminated carbon footprint. Sounds like it's really making an economic case for being environmentally and socially sustainable here. Yeah, that's actually something I focused on primarily my, like my part that we focus on. So I have other, so many team members, right? We've had approximately 300 people directly contributing with uh, boots on the ground. Um, so massive team. And in the same sense, we've had uh, over 300 private impact investors from all over the world. Um, but what we're, what I really try to do is work on the business model to show how do these numbers work and how can an investor feel positive at the end of the day? 
Um, and so making sure that even though our ship is a little bit smaller, okay, a lot smaller, uh, but that we're actually balancing everything out at the end of the day. And as a follow-up question, I do want to get into this idea of, of propulsion systems because you are combining the sailing, the sails, <laughs> the wind, um, with zero emission propulsion systems that you really are kind of piloting um, through the Seba and Vega cargo ships. But I know you also have other projects in the works really testing out these different systems. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So with Seba, what we're doing is essentially combining tried and tested technology. So wooden masts, canvas sails, you know, humans have interacted with this sort of arrangement for literally thousands of years. We know what we're doing with that. So that gives us a degree of certainty or confidence in which we're able to then sort of play with or test out a more innovative material, uh, more innovative systems. So with Seba, this wooden ship with canvas sails, we also have two 150 kilowatt electric engines that will, will have twin uh, propellers that are capable of regenerating energy. So if you've ever driven an electric car, it's like coming to a stop or going down a hill and switching into regen mode, and you know that you're charging up your batteries. Our ship can do the exact same thing. So by combining old with new, we're able to take greater risks and prove some of those uh, newer innovative technologies. That's really exciting. Thank you so much for sharing. Emily, I'm going to turn back to you now. I feel like to fully understand the significance and impact of what the Zebra Glass Project was hoping to accomplish, I think it's important to understand a little bit about the history of invasive zebra and quagga mussels in the U.S. Great Lakes. So can you tell us a little bit about that history? You know, what challenges have these species created? And maybe even what measures have been tried or taken to address the problem? Yeah, definitely. Um, so zebra and quagga mussels were first introduced into the Great Lakes ecosystem in the 1980s. Um, and by way of the St. Lawrence Seaway uh, on large shipping vessels uh, from Russia and Ukraine. So they've been in the ecosystem for decades now, uh, but they do pose very large geological threats um, because they reproduce very quickly. Uh, so there's approximately 8,000 uh, zebra and quagga mussels per cubic square meter. Um, so they, they grow very fast. Um, so some negative effects of this is that they attach themselves onto infrastructure, um, propeller boats, uh, so that's how they move very easily throughout the Great Lakes. Um, and they're also threatening to uh, beaches as well, making beaches inhospitable uh, for beach goers as their shells wash up onto the beaches and are very sharp. Uh, so some other remediation techniques that have been used um, are to try to grind the zebra mussels up into a finer sand. Uh, there was a project in 2011 that was called the Beach Maker which tried to grind the shells up on the beaches themselves. Um, another technique was similarly used, but for infrastructure. So in road working construction, zebra mussel shells were used to supplement sand. Um, and then lastly, a mollusk side uh, was used on infrastructure within the water to try to repel uh, these mussels from attaching them themselves to the infrastructure. But um, that is not really a sure way to uh, make sure that the mussels aren't on there because the chemical also affects other animals within the ecosystem. 
Yeah. Difficult to try to address a challenge and then just create more challenges. Right. <laughs> so that, that leads me to uh, the question about zebra glass. So what makes muscles an appropriate precursor material for glass production? Maybe you can tell us about the actual procedure your team used to turn these muscles into the very first batch of zebra glass. Sure. Um, so we first identified this invasive species as a threat to the Great Lakes region and tried to understand um, what are they actually composed of and what can we make from them as color and material designers. Uh, so after doing research um, and working with different collaborators and contributors to the project, um, members from the Michigan State Fisheries and Wildlife Community, um, the Great Lakes Water Quality Board, uh, we identified that zebra mussels are comprised of approximately 95% calcium carbonate. Um, so after understanding the materiality of the shells themselves, we started looking into uh, more research in what is calcium carbonate mainly used in. Uh, so within the soda lime glass making process, which is also pretty central to the Great Lakes region, um, we identified that this could be substituted uh, as a material within that process. So from there, um, we developed a, a process to grind the zebra mussel shells in a very primitive way. Um, this was in 2020, so it was in the midst of the pandemic and studio shutdowns. Um, but uh, we ended up working with other members of the local glassmaking community, as well as representatives from our university to develop a kiln program to essentially fire uh, this recipe that we had into glass. Well, while both of our panelists here for this session are tackling very different challenges, I think something that we have in common here is this community engagement element, uh, which leads me really to my next question uh, for you, Danielle. You've mentioned that SEBA is currently under construction. And specifically, this is happening at your eco-friendly shipyard in Costa Rica. So why was it important for you to build the ship locally in this community? So it was incredibly important for us. Uh, we originally landed and started our headquarters small office in the cloud forest of Monteverde, which is a beautiful mountaintop surrounded by clouds. And after we gained a bit of traction with the company, we, we started looking for the, a shipyard. And essentially, we found the perfect location, which was the closest beach to Monteverde, so straight down the mountain. And this was located in, is located in the Gulf of Nicoya, which is on the Pacific coast. So we found the perfect little parcel of land. Everything fell into place. And it just happened to be in one of the financially poorest districts of the entire country. And while this is absolutely not standard for Costa Rica, up to 90% of our neighbors were living under the poverty line and a high percentage of them uh, were not able to read. Again, that's not normal for Costa Rica at all. So what we were finding is that we were uh, unintentionally located in what I now refer to as a forgotten coastal community, which you can see all over the world, especially in small island developing nations and in Central America as well. We've seen it all over um, where these little fishing nations kind of get forgotten or rather, sorry, communities get forgotten. And so it was incredibly important for us to be coming in as people from up to 30 different nations internationally come together to, to make sure we were wanted, to make sure that people from that community saw us as people who would be bringing something valuable to them.
and enhancing the, the life quality, the quality of life there. And not just coming in as outsiders and I don't know, taking, you know, this, uh, we have to be very cautious of extraction and, uh, you know, other words that are very prevalent in today's communication. We didn't want to be like that. And so we wanted to, and we do follow through with the nonprofit organization, uh, aiming to, and often exceeding, have a minimum of 50% hires from within Costa Rica. So our employee base, we have up to 50 employees. We are now the largest employer in the community. And all of that really um, comes back in positive waves for us, because you're not really going to get too far without your community behind you. So, yeah, I'm, I hope I answered your question properly. Absolutely. And I think it actually leads to a question we have here from the audience. Uh, that question is, does Sail Cargo employ women in construction and the delivery of cargo overseas? Yeah, absolutely. I should have, uh, it, it changes quite often, but at all times, we always have a, a relatively high percentage of women uh, on our team in all sorts of ways. So, for a little while, we did have almost 50% women in our construction team, uh, but that was very short-lived. But we do have, yeah, a, a very high percentage, I would say. We have a couple little success stories that make me really happy where we would made a few hires from the community. Uh, there's a couple different instances, but I'll tell one story in particular. If a friend of mine now, and she's a, you know, a young single mom from the area, and she came in as a cleaning uh, person, especially she became full-time when COVID happened because that became so important. Um, and then one day we we're looking over and I see her picking up the chainsaw with the guys. And this is not super normal in Costa Rica or anywhere in the world where you see young single mom, cleaning lady type demographic just going for the chainsaw. Uh, and we were able to uh, ask her if she'd like to do that. And she said, yeah, she wants to learn. And so she's one of several success stories where she actually left the company and, and, and with the intention of building her own house. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> we do. Wow. Love that story. Thank you so much for sharing. And congratulations on just one of what sounds like many success stories. Emily, I want to keep with this sort of community regional theme here with a question for you. I've heard you talk about how zebra glass could, in theory, result in this region-specific artisanal glass. And I'm wondering if you can sort of explain to us how the glass could be really tied to the identity of the region. Sure. Um, so zebra mussels themselves ingest um, metal oxide ions from their environment. So we anticipate that based on the lake in the region that the zebra and quagga mussels were extracted from, it would um, affect the kiln programming for the temperature. And uh, there would be different colored glasses from each of the lakes where the mussels were extracted from. Uh, so this reinforces the sense of community and an emotional connection with um, the viewer and understanding that this invasive species doesn't necessarily have to be threatening um, and they're now a part of our environment. So it's a, a really beautiful interaction between the viewer, the environment and the invasive species. And speaking of that, I do have an audience question for you. Um, I think to just kind of clarify this process, how are the zebra mussels harvested, whether for your project or future iterations, if, if this were to be scaled up? Um, so these mussels for the initial firing, they were harvested um, from Lake Michigan and they were sent to us uh, from an anthic biologist 
she had collected these zebra mussels that were attached to infrastructure. Um, as part of her typical practice, it was to remove them. Uh, so the zebra mussels themselves, they were already dead. So they were really just the shells. So from there, uh, we started cleaning them, let them uh, dry out, and then we ground them into a finer sand. So this could be as, I don't want to say simple, because you would need a lot of mussels to, to keep this ongoing, but as simple as collecting them off the beach. Um, theoretically, yes. It oh. is a lot of, um, it does require some heavy-duty equipment but to grind them. But yes. Got it. Okay, thank you. Okay, Danielle, I'm going to flip back to you now. Um, I want to stay on this, the, the subject with you of the actual shipyard and where a lot of this work is happening in Costa Rica. The shipyard, as I understand, is called Estilero Verde. Um, and it's a nonprofit sustainable shipyard that really facilitates the work that you're doing at Sail Cargo Inc., can you explain what sorts of components or activities you've integrated into this shipyard to make it sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. So the list, first of all, is too long that I won't be able to answer all of that, but I'd like to start by setting the scene. So if you've ever been to an industrial shipyard or really any heavy industry area, you can imagine that you're walking into cement there's like big gates and, you know, passes and there's vehicles and heavy duty machinery and the sounds are quite loud and it's gray, right? So these are the kind of shipyards I've worked at. When you walk up to the gates at Astiero Verde, it's green. Everything is green. You literally open the gates through the vines and the trees are around you and the sounds you hear start by birds and all these creatures and eventually, yes, yeah, turns into chainsaw sounds. Um, but you're looking around you, and as you look around, you see the Women's Association, which we've worked with for years, cooking locally organic plastic uh, free packaging sourced food over the fire using traditional uh, recipes. You can see other people who are groundskeepers picking the bananas and plantains from our own gardens that we planted, which are using our secondary gray water systems, uh, which are naturally filtered through the rocks that we put in there to water that, so it's reuse of some of our uh, particular types of gray water. This food is being cooked over uh, open fire, so it has a lot of ventilation in also a pizza oven, uh, using the off cuts or what would be uh, otherwise thrown away pieces of wood. So that's how we cook all the food. Um, and as well, we have the off cuts of the, the sawdust, which is given away to neighbors for free, which they use in their gardens and for their chickens and all these sort of things. Uh, but there's also other ways that we maintain being sustainable. We have a nursery there where we do tree tree uh, growing of young trees, especially to replace the specific species that we cut. Um, but we also do a lot of uh, regenerative building. So a lot of, which is a, a, something we can't do up in the Great Lakes region, but it's, well, we can, but not the way we do it there. It's very open. So we have beautiful treehouse offices where we're even, you can, plant using the trees and growing into structural beams. Um, and the list just kind of goes on like that. Um, yeah, so that's, but it's very much more uh, the whole feeling. It's a very integral, holistic approach. Well, thank you for painting the picture because I'm seeing it absolutely. And I'm really impressed hearing about all of those efforts that you've been able to implement and knowing that that's just the tip of the iceberg. 
at the same time, I'm thinking here and seeing another commonality between between the work of Danielle and Emily, and that is this idea of really changing the way that we as a society think about different aspects of, of sustainability, whether it be in the shipping sense or in the invasive sense. And Emily, I really want to turn to you because one of the goals of the Zebra Glass Project, really from the outset, was to facilitate a paradigm shift of sorts about invasive species, such that these species could be seen as a material resource instead of just as an environmental nuisance. So can you talk to us a little bit about how this idea might be relevant to invasive species even in other locations? Yeah, definitely. Um, we've always maintained with zebra glass that the goal was not to completely eradicate eradicate the species, but just to mitigate. Um, so in creating a solution that creates such an emotional response with our local community, um, we see this as an opportunity for other invasive species to use a similar rebranding technique. Um, and it, we're more focusing on acceptance into the ecosystem, um, trying to mitigate the damages that invasive species have. Um, but it's, it's really on the paradigm shift and focusing on viewing this invasive species as uh, not as an ecological threat, but we're viewing it as a resource. And how can we come in and create something that has a, a different meaning from the same uh, species? That makes sense. And I could absolutely seeing that, see that idea being useful in other contexts in other parts of the United States or other parts of the world dealing with even very different invasive species. So um, I think that's something that we can all chew on moving forward today. Danielle, time to turn back to you. I have one question of my own, and then I think one or two audience questions that'll be good follow-ups here for you. My question, I want to get back to what you said at the very outset. You are currently in the process of bringing Vega to uh, its home port to begin use um, immediately, really. When exactly do you foresee Vega to begin sailing, and what is it going to be transporting? Give us a little sneak peek. Yeah, absolutely. So for anybody who may already be aware of our story, we recently purchased Vega in Sweden uh, in April and we began the delivery. So taking the ship along the Baltic Sea, uh, up through the Kiel Canal and into the North Sea. And we stopped here in Harlingen in the Netherlands, where we found out kind of a huge problem, which was that we uh, f found uh, critical faults in all three of her masts and the bowsprit, which is crazy, right, to me to ask how this happened. But uh, we had to replace all the masts. So right now, my team is working just across the road, well, starting tomorrow morning, and we are replacing all the masts. This has been a huge progress uh, process for us, and we anticipate starting to sail here around November 1st. After that, we're going to be crossing the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, headed for uh, Santa Marta, Colombia, which is in the Caribbean Sea. And when we get to Santa Marta, Colombia, we'll be loading a cargo hold full of around 150 cubic meters or 75 tons approximately of green coffee beans. So one of our biggest supporters is Cafe William and you can check them out, Cafe William Spartavento. And they are one of our biggest supporters and they are going to be bringing these coffee beans into a port in New Jersey. So we're extremely excited to be working with them because the coffee will be transporting 
uh, I, I don't have all the details on this yet, but I know it is a, uh, you know, shade grown uh, organic fair trade coffee that we're actually going to be partnering with a local Aboriginal uh, group that has already been producing this. So we're really excited because it's going to be the whole story, the entire narrative from loading the coffee to roasting it at the end. How exciting. And this gets into, like I said, an audience question here. Are there things like tax benefits that Sail Cargo is able to take advantage of as a clean shipping company? And does that really like factor into your profit calculations? So there are certain things in Costa Rica that we've been able to do. So so Costa Rica already has a pretty uh, active uh, uh, stance on that. So, for example, if you want to import an old car or even not a really old car, you're going to have an import tax between 70 and 100 percent, which is crazy. Uh, but if you are importing, for example, an electric vehicle, it is zero percent. So we do benefit from certain things, primarily import tax. Uh, we also have uh, some pretty nice offers from the Panama Canal, uh, waiving fees. But in general, it's not to the point where we could really bank on it, if it makes sense. So there are not the kind of tax relief or subsidies or anything like that that we've experienced so far uh, anywhere in the world that you would probably hope for as we work towards a cleaner shipping future. That's helpful. Thank you. And one other audience question for you. Is Sail Cargo also looking at, I guess you could say, more recent developments in sailing technologies like kite propulsion or others? Well, that is definitely on our radar. Uh, it's not something that we're directly looking at with Sail Cargo. Um, basically, what we are looking at in terms of innovation is the auxiliary propulsion. So we've worked with uh, a company called Ad Astra Rocket, which is an affiliate of NASA. So it is a space technology company based in Costa Rica that focuses on green hydrogen. And we uh, completed a feasibility study with them and a bunch more research with them also on how can green hydrogen be applied in the maritime sector. So we are looking forward to uh, innovative green technologies in that, but more with the auxiliary engines. Understood. Okay, because time flies when we're having fun, uh, we have only a few more minutes left in this session. So what I'm gonna do is I have one more question for you, Emily, and then I'm gonna wrap up with a question for both of you. So uh, Emily, you mentioned at the onset of our conversation today that your team took what I would really consider to be an innovative artistic approach to tackling the zebra and quagga mussel challenge. So based on your experience with this project, what do you think is the role of artistic perspectives in tackling environmental challenges? Um, as designers, we really approach this uh, from an emotional standpoint and trying to make a connection with the community. Um, and I think that emotion is what's needed in order to propel an idea, um, just in general. So I would really say that that sense of connection and emotion moving forward is something that can be applied to other invasive species in other regions um, and can really help uh, support the more logical, critical um, side of the proposal. Thank you. Okay, so my final wrap-up question for both of you, this is our 30-second take-home message question, is what can other U.S. or international locations really learn from your work, um, basically based on sail cargo and zebra glass? Basically, what makes these strategies that you are developing translatable? So uh, we'll flip it around. Emily, we'll start with you, and Danielle, you'll have the final word. 
Yeah, the primary strategy with zebraglass um, is to focus on acceptance of invasive species and really reworking the narrative uh, to understand that there's more of a connection than we think uh, between the community and the species um, and to view them as a material resource to help support us instead of a negative undertone or connotation to them. And Danielle. Yeah, I would actually echo what Emily said. I think that's a great answer is not only focusing on what is shown to you necessarily or what you how you think about something. So people think about big ships, scale, bad, uh, you know, if you're not a massive ship, you're not competitive. But at the same time, there are so many different applications and so many different ways that you can look at the maritime sector, just like you can look at the zebra mussels as bringing different things to the table. There are so many types of ships and so many different waterways that need to be uh, have different vessels on them that to try to think outside the box and see what other options are already in front of us, just like that glass was already in front of us and we just didn't see it in that light before. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.